So in this episode, we're going to review headache, related disorders, facial pain. And again, our emphasis is on uh, picking out the key features that are important in, uh, in ach achieving the best success on um, uh, in-service and certification examinations. But we hope that this also sort of deepens people's uh, expertise and understanding of, uh, of uh, disease processes as well. Um, so migraine and related disorders is an enormous chunk of neurological practice and yet a relatively small portion of licensing and certification exams uh, and I think that's interesting but uh, I do think it is worth uh, diving deep into into migraine, and so I'm here with Chris Gottschalk, uh, who is the you can tell me your director name. of headache medicine and section chief of general neurology. Perfect. Couldn't have done it better myself. So Fair thanks, enough. thanks for doing this. And also we have uh, a special guest, uh, Kevin uh, Wilson, uh, one of our residents, who will eventually take over this podcast. Hi, folks. All right. So Chris, uh, uh, I'll just go through the outline. We're going to start with the key points in primary headaches. Uh, we'll talk about migraine uh, of various types. Uh, then we'll talk about the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. Uh, I would like to spend a little time uh, talking about new daily persistent headache, uh, a common enough clinical disorder and in my experience one that residents don't have as much experience or comfort with and a good one to highlight. Sure. Uh, and, and then I think we'll uh, we'll talk about all of those things in terms of physiology and clinical characteristics and then talk about headache treatments a little bit separately because I think that's a, a huge topic and there's a lot of overlap uh, in treating the headache disorders. Very true. Um, then we'll move on to some uh, key head, uh, secondary headache syndromes. We won't uh, be exhaustive in our list, but a few that I thought were really important were idiopathic intracranial hypertension, trigeminal neuralgia, uh, temporal arteritis, uh, spontaneous intracranial hypotension, something that's receiving a lot of attention recently and I think our residents need to know about and uh, and briefly about cerebral autosomal dominant uh, uh, arteriopathy. arteriopathy with stroke-like attacks and leukoencephalopathy. Yes. Catacil. Yeah. I, I didn't make it, I didn't stick the landing on that one, but, uh, <laughs> but thanks. So uh, Chris, Let's start. What is your approach to teaching people about recognizing the clinical features of migraine? So I think the, as with so many things in uh, medical diagnosis, a big part of the problem is to recognize the prior probability or the, the prevalence of these disorders in practice as opposed to what is quoted about the prevalence in the general population. So long time ago I read somebody's working definition of migraine is any recurrent headache that causes impairment. And I think if you start from there you really get on the right track, which is it doesn't matter so much exactly what the details are, but if this is a headache that gets in people's way, then it's probably migraine. And the landmark study of some 15 years ago kind of confirmed that by saying when you surveyed 10 different practices and 10 different, 100 different practices in 10 different countries and looked at consecutive patients who complain of headache to their doctor, that the chance that that complaint was migraine was about 95%. So yes, it's true that migraine is about 18% of women in any given time in the U.S. population and in others, or 30% of women in their 30s and 40s. 
But in a doctor's office, headache is migraine until proven otherwise. So that's a great place to start. And I think that's a surprise to most clinicians who think the goal is to weed out tension headache and sinus headache and cervicogenic headache and brain lesions of all various kinds that are causing headache on a regular basis. And in fact, those are extraordinarily rare. And in some cases, like sinus headache, don't exist as far as I'm concerned. So looking at the international classification of headache disorders, you have fairly straightforward criteria for characteristics of headache, unilateral, moderate to severe, throbbing, worse with activity, and then one of phonophotophobia or nausea. And having two of the first four and one of the other two gets you there. So that means everyone agrees that a throbbing, unilateral, horrible headache that puts you in the dark and makes you throw up is a migraine, fine. But it also means that according to those criteria, a bilateral, moderate, non-throbbing headache that is worse with activity and makes you queasy is still a migraine. So that distinction is what throws people very far off the base a lot, I think. The ID migraine study, the screening test that was developed, a self-screening test that was developed also about 10 years ago, simply asks, do you have headaches that cause photophobia or any kind of functional impairment or nausea? If you answer yes to any two of those, the positive predictive value of that screen is 93%. And if you answer all three, it's 98%. So that means three simple questions that can be given to people when they're sitting in a waiting room can help doctors recognize migraine routinely. So that's kind of the foundation of the problem is it's everywhere, it's really not hard to classify, and then a good history will allow you to pick out those cases that are in fact something else, that the recognizing red flags, and there's some a very good mnemonic for that, will get you far. And then I think the fun begins, which is the variations on that theme, all of the interesting presentations of migraine that could be mostly headache, could be mostly dizziness, could be mostly aura, could be mostly queasiness, any number of things that emerge as you start to really dig into what people's experience is over time, I think is, uh, you know, what makes that an interesting experience. The, the other part of that I think that's worth addressing is what I typically refer to as the landscape of migraine, which is this is a disorder that exists over the lifespan. It's not as if it pops up for a couple of years and disappears. And when we start to think about or look at what those manifestations are over the age span, I think it becomes also informative and interesting. So we've known for a long time there are so-called periodic syndromes that are predictors of migraine in children like tummy aches, which are really what we would call abdominal migraine, dizzy spells, even torticollis has been called one of those, and then motion sickness. So a kid who's car sick regularly is a kid who's probably going to have migraine. The most interesting addition to that group now is colic. There is some really good research that has simply found that if you follow kids with colic, 75% of them go on to present with migraine years later. More than 60% of those kids have a mom with migraine. So all of those imply that what we've been thinking of as some kind of GI problem in a little kid is really a little kid who, if he could talk, would say, my head is killing me and please turn the lights off. 
I think you've really hit uh, <coughs> an important point uh, there, and this is something that does show up on uh, in-service and, lic and licensing exams, so, uh, board exams, uh, is uh, the childhood episodic, uh, quote-unquote, benign syndromes uh, that are linked to migraine. And there may be some questions on exams about those, and, and those do include the cyclic vomiting uh, syndrome, uh, motion sickness, and episodic torticollis. Uh, and and there, there have been questions about their relationship with later migraine and probably their connection to migraine physiology we'll get back to. Sure. Just to summarize a few points uh, uh, that you brought up. Uh, so the International Classification of Headache Disorders is an exhaustive and comprehensive list of every headache syndrome you could ever uh, want to see. Uh, and I don't think uh, it's necessary for any of our residents to necessarily know those uh, by heart. Uh, but it is a nice reference. ICHD-3.org, uh, I think exactly is where you right. find it. Uh, and, and just to summarize, so the, the uh, classification for migraine without aura I think is important. So that is at least five headache attacks, uh, headaches lasting four to 72 hours, untreated or unsuccessfully treated, so they can be shorter if successfully treated. And as you said, two of the following four, unilateral, pulsating, moderate to severe, worse with activity or causing avoidance of activity. And one of the following two, nausea or vomiting or photophobia and phonophobia. And as you said, that means every moderate to severe headache uh, that has a pulsating quality and uh, causes some photophobia is migraine. Right. Uh, and then, of course, the last thing, like every one of these classification systems, not consistent with another syndrome. Um, uh, and then uh, I will uh, read out in, in, a, in the headache card that we give our residents, we have the mnemonic for the red flags. But really, this gets to some of the secondary uh, syndromes. So uh, you have uh, S, uh, two S, sorry, two SNOOP4. Correct. Uh, so that's two S's and then four P's. And so those are systemic symptoms, secondary risk factors, and those can include things like immune suppression or HIV, uh, uh, neurological symptoms or signs outside of aura, which we'll talk about next, uh, onset that's ab abrupt, so the thunderclap headache, and there's a differential diagnosis for that, uh, older onset, uh, older people can get new onset migraine, but it does cons uh, make you consider some of the uh, secondary headache syndromes. Uh, previous uh, headache history, so if there's a huge change in pattern, sometimes that can be a cause of concern. And, uh, and then your other three P's are papilledema, a positional component or precipitated by cough, and we'll get into some reasons why that's important. Tell me about migraine aura. I think this is a source of some misunderstanding uh, among uh, uh, physicians, among residents about how aura is defined, and this can be critically important. I agree with that. So it is certainly true that textbooks and most people's experience of teaching is that the that aura is defined as only a scintillating scotoma that lasts 20 to 30 minutes, about an hour before the onset of a headache. That's a reasonable starting point, but I think the problem becomes that people then imagine that that's the only description of aura, and anything more than that is, is scary or difficult or so-called complicated migraine, which doesn't need to be the case. So yes, it's about 60 years ago that a, a fellow named Lashley, a neuropsychologist, published a beautiful paper in which he drew diagrams of his progressive scintillating scotoma. And you can actually find Lash Lashley's images if you if you uh, Google search Google image search 
uh, my gray Nora, there's some hand drawings that show up uh, usually in the list, which yeah. are Rat Lashley's drawings. Yeah, they're phenomenal. And he was bright enough to predict that this meant there was some kind of wave of spreading activity across his occipital cortex at about two or three millimeters a minute. But then we know from further experience that this is the bare minimum, or that aura can be much longer than that, it can be variations on that theme, just a little blurry patch, just a little shimmering, alterations in perspective which lead to things like Alice in Wonderland syndrome, and it is true that very commonly, almost as often as visual disturbance, is a hemisensory disturbance, some combination of tingling numbness or often heaviness, which is too often interpreted as actual weakness, and even language impairment. There are some great things on YouTube you can look at of people, of uh, news announcers who suddenly became aphasic and were thought to have had a stroke and in fact had a migraine aura. But understanding that both any of those re areas of sensory or functional disturbance is allowable is a migraine aura, and the particular fine point that the evolution from one of those to the next in that order, visual disturbance and then sensory disturbance and then language disturbance, is diagnostic of migraine aura and can help you exclude TIA or stroke, which don't move around your head over time, right? You can have any of those symptoms onset together, but not over a period of time during an attack. So there is a discriminative value of eliciting that history from someone that these symptoms emerged over minutes to hours. But the fact that you can have a combination of deficits is what too often still gets called complicated migraine, and I think that that's a term we can now dismiss. It is simply migraine with aura, and then can be treated accordingly. You touched on this briefly, but I think one thing that helps uh, make sense of aura is, is talking about the underlying physiology behind it that helps kind of uh, keep, help me keep track of, uh, of how it works. Could you go over that really quickly? Sure. So that, that prediction that Lashley made was validated in almost the same year when a researcher named Liao uh, published a long paper about a phenomenon that he had observed in brains of many gyriform mammals, and that is that there would be, after touching the brain surface, dropping a little potassium on it, etc., a wave of spreading depression of, of cortical activity, which would then leave quiet cortex for 20 to 30 minutes and then wake back up again, and that that leading edge of that depression spread at about 2 or 3 millimeters a minute. So he labeled that cortical spreading depression. We now call it cortical spreading depolarization because we have a better understanding of its physiology. It is associated with enormous release of glutamate, among other things. But recognizing that there is this posterior pole to anterior progression of electrochemical discharge and then suppression of activity for some period of time as the underlying physiology, I agree, is extremely informative. We even have human fMRI studies, most of them done sort of by accident when someone had an aura during some other study, which validate that this does exist in humans. So knowing that there is a, a, a recognizable physiology, I think, is absolutely essential and helps us also to understand why it is, most likely, that anticonvulsants are such good migraine prevention drugs. 
So I uh, wanted to mention a little bit about uh, spreading cortical depression, I think, just to summarize what you're saying. Uh, and, and this really, uh, as you said, does explain why, quote-unquote, complicated migraine is actually just straightforward expression of that physiology. And that is that there is this very slow wave, as you said, three millimeters per minute. This is very slow. This is much slower than synaptic transmission in epilepsy, for example. S usually starts in the occipital pole and spreads anteriorly. And if you go occipital and spread anteriorly across the, uh, across the superior surface of the brain, the next thing you find is the parietal lobe. And so sensory symptoms are hardly surprising. Uh, and if you uh, spread anteriorly, especially along the dominant hemisphere, uh, inferiorly, that's going to be the temporal lobe, and hence uh, 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 cognitive and language symptoms are not going to be that surprising either. And, and that, that spreading of, of two, uh, three millimeters per minute also explains why a typical migraine aura across the visual cortex is going to take approximately 20 minutes. And a migraine aura that uh, spreads uh, and involves sensory and, and cognitive symptoms may take something like an hour, not usually much longer than that, except with persistent aura uh, later on. Uh, the last point is, it's very rare, as I understand it, for migraine aura for the spreading cortical depression to cross the central sulcus also and true. produce weakness. And right. so true weakness is rare with migraine. A perception of heaviness or weakness, which we sometimes misinterpret as quote-unquote hemiplegic migraine uh, is that case. So, Very helpful point. <laughs> um, and one last thing is uh, there are syndromes of hemiplegic migraine, the familial hemiplegic migraine syndromes. There's a number of them. They tend to be related to channelopathies, to mutations in channels like the CACNA1A channel and some of the sodium channels, the SCN channels, uh, but those are very different syndromes. Uh, they tend to be autosomal dominant, most of them, uh, not all. Yes, and those genes have taught us quite a bit about the underlying physiology we think of even more common aura. So uh, I wanted to move on to the physiology of pain, and this is particularly important, or, or pain and the other sort of associated non-aura symptoms with migraine. And this is particularly important because of some of the emerging uh, treatments uh, for migraine. Um, can you talk through w what are the core elements of the generation of the migraine attack and uh, and where that starts and sort of the elements of the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology that that at, at the resident level they need to understand for success on ex an exam? I will I will do my best with that. That's certainly not uh, my area of study, but I can, I can give you my best rendering of that. So certainly that basic understanding of cortical spreading depression as an initiating event and how that predicts the evolution of those sensory disturbances is helpful. It is still unclear exactly how it is that that wave of abnormal electrical and chemical activity irritates or precipitates trigeminal activation, but there are some hints at that. There are studies of the PANKS-1 receptor, which is clearly activated during that wave and which is present on trigeminal neurons. But once you get past that phase when it exists of aura, um, and there are certainly many, and I'm part of that group that thinks that probably CSD, cortical depression, is present in most patients with migraine. It's just that only some of them sense it. But once you get past that phase, you then have, most importantly, activation of the trigeminal vascular system. So the trigeminal 
nucleus, the trigeminal ganglion, the bipolar neurons that come from that are divided, as we know, into three divisions. That's the name of the nerve. And the important point there, I think, is why is it that the pain of migraine is only in V1? Because it's the only branch of that nerve that has intracranial collaterals. So in fact, the pain of migraine is best understood as referred pain from some kind of activation of those of that division from the mental meningeal artery and other major arteries of the brain, the meninges and the venous sinuses. Something occurs which activates them, helps us to understand that probably in evolutionary terms, migraine is some kind of alarm system. Yes, it's true. If you have blood or pus or some tumor growing in your head, it will irritate those same nerve endings and let you know there's a problem. For some reason, it appears, many people, especially women, have kind of a hair trigger on that system and it just goes off. So once that trigeminal activity begins, the trigeminal nerve is firing abnormally, it's firing persistently, it's firing progressively. What does it do? It it activates other trigeminal nerve endings. It releases CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide. In the brain, CGRP is, is located almost exclusively in the trigeminal nerves. That's an important point. It is present in sensory neurons throughout the body, but in the brain we know exactly where it is. And it was about 30 years ago that in a lab in Scandinavia, during studies in rodents to try to model migraine, they discovered that if you basically hook a battery up to the trigeminal nerve and irritate it long enough, you would get something that looks like a migraine sequence and release of this small peptide, which was characterized and cloned and found to be similar to calcitonin, hence its name. There was great interest about that. It was then discovered it was present in all mammals, including humans, and that if you measure levels of CGRP during attacks of migraine or cluster, you will find significant elevations in the pain phase, goes away when it's treated, and then some, I think, fairly daring people went so far as to infuse the CGRP into people with migraine or cluster and found that you could, in fact, trigger episodes of typical migraine in those patients. An interesting quality qualification of that from a paper last year was that CGRP precipitates cluster attacks in people only during their cluster period. If they're not in a cluster period, it has no effect. I think a fascinating suggestion. There's a molecular switch there that we don't understand. So once the trigeminal nerve is activated, it is firing abnormally, it is releasing CGRP, which causes vasodilation. So I think we can finally lay to rest the idea that vasodilation is a consequence of trigeminal activation and migraine, but not a cause. The further problem then is the longer the trigeminal remains active, it begins to sensitize second and third order neurons. That notion of secondary or central sensitization is the bread and butter of pain physiology in any other part of the body and was finally applied to migraine physiology only about 20 years ago. And the important clinical message there is during a migraine attack, it happens over a period of two to four hours most likely and predicts the efficacy of tryptans. If you administer a tryptan, which is only a peripherally acting agent, in the first few hours before central sensitization occurs, you have an enormous success rate, 80 or 90%. 
Once there is central sensitization, that falls to 5 or 10%. And the good news is there is a clinical indicator of that transition, the, the emergence of allodynia. So early in an attack, somebody has pain. They may have nausea and all that other stuff. But if you touch the head, scratch the head, put a cold stimulus on it, they'll look at you funny and ask what you're doing, but they won't be upset. But after the development of allodynia, oh my God, what are you doing? Get away from me. That their threshold for pain changes dramatically. At that point, triptans are ineffective, but we have also shown other agents remain effective, like high-dose NSAIDs, like DHE. So understanding how the timing of treatment matters according to that sequence and whether that drugs which have central penetration and activity are necessary the farther along you are helps explain how we approach migraine treatment differently in the ER, for example. But starting with those parts about something about abnormal cortical activity, the sequence of peripheral and then central activation of the trigeminal system, I think, are the key points. And then taking into account that those other symptoms we discussed, nausea, phonophotophobia, sometimes osmophobia, those don't localize to the trigeminal, obviously, but they certainly could be explained by thalamic activity, which we know is abnormal in migraine as well. So with those kind of main relay stations in your mind, I think you can explain most of what the phenomenology of migraine that we see. This is a uh, this is a nice segue, I think, to treatment, uh, and and so the, the, you know I think it's it's a I often tell the residents this is a great time in history to be interested in migraine. Uh, the physiology is starting to be understood on a molecular and anatomical level better than ever before, uh, and as a result, there's an emergence in a greater understanding in the nuances of treatment, as as you've alluded to. So just to summarize, I think it's really important for residents to be aware of the activation of the trigeminovascular system, the TGVS. Uh, that includes uh, uh, many things, including the trigeminal nucleus, uh, uh, nucleus caudalis uh, in the upper cervical cord, which probably explains why that you get involvement of V1 in the neck and the back of the head in migraine preferentially. And that neuropeptides that are important include CGRP, but in terms of that secondary activation also include things like serotonin, uh, dopamine, and cyclooxygenase, and as we get to treatments, all of those things play a role. And that that secondary sensitization happens probably because of projections from the trigeminal vascular system up to the thalamus. Yes. And in terms of preventative agents, we're probably working to modulate those projections between the trigeminal vascular system and the thalamus. Absolutely. So, so, so let's move on to treatment, and I think you've already talked about this, but uh, we talk about classes of abortive therapies. Uh, and I think you and I would agree that triptans are underused. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, and I wanted to go through the triptans because I think some people have uh, an element of discomfort with choosing the right triptan. Uh, and and there is sort of a level of, of potency and a level of uh, a duration of action and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, I, I, I think of the two poles as being sort of the highest potency, shortest acting, fastest onset. And those are going to be parenteral formulations. And they can include subcutaneous sumatriptan or intranasal suma or, or zolmatriptan. Uh, then the higher potency, the next step down, are going to be the oral versions of sumatriptan and zolmatriptan. 
the next step down from that are sort of what, what could be the medium potency, uh, uh, medium duration uh, and um, tryptans, and they're all oral, and those include, uh, include elotriptan, rizotriptan, and almotriptan, maybe a little less used than those other two. Yes. Uh, and then our long-acting uh, uh, triptans, which may play a role in prophylaxis for perimenstrual migraine, for example, or breaking the cycle of migraine, and those two include Nera and Frovatriptan. Right. Uh, I just wanted to briefly sort of summarize those. But as you said, the key is early treatment is going to be most effective. Uh, if you're going with the higher potency medications, uh, they are likely to have the most highest side effects. So if you're seeing a lot of side effects, but they're effective, you can take a step down. Right. If you're seeing not a lot of side effects and only partial effectiveness, you can take a step up that ladder. Absolutely agree. And I just want to, it was a beautiful summary, and I just want to highlight the other part of that, which is the, the clinical data tell us that across the board, trials of oral triptans, when you look at the primary outcome measures of these studies, which is two-hour pain-free rates, they're not that exciting. We're talking about 20% of patients who take an oral triptan can expect to have a two-hour pain-free response at least with a single attack study. In comparison with that, the two-hour pain-free rate of injectable sumatriptan is 75 or 80 percent. So knowing that difference, my practice is founded on the idea that every patient with migraine should take an injectable triptan. At least they should know what that looks like. And then that becomes the yardstick for a response. If that works beautifully with no side effects, you're done. If it has side effects, exactly. We now have lower dose formulations of the injection. You might then move back to an oral preparation. But I think the big problem is most patients don't realize that the idea of having a two-hour pain-free response is even a possibility. And that, I think, minimizes the response much of the time. And then and you can augment the effect of triptan medications by adding NSAIDs, which work on the cyclooxygenase uh, part of the central sensitization pathway, and, uh, and dopamine-blocking anti-emetic medications, such as metoclopramide or, or proclopirazine. And just to underscore that last part, so keep in mind that those dopamine-blocking agents uh, are not just effective because they help treat the symptoms of nausea. That's fine. But we have many studies that demonstrate that metoclopramide itself is a phenomenally effective migraine drug in and of itself, more effective in ER studies, for example, than even injected NSAIDs. And there are studies that show that these drugs promote normal gastric absorption. Gastroparesis is fundamental to any migraine attack, and so half the problem I think people face is they take pills that don't get absorbed. We've shown that administration of metoclopramide with other agents promotes the absorption of those drugs. So you, whether or not a migraine patient is nauseated, adding an antiemetic will help them respond faster and better. I don't want to spend too much time on the prophylactic agents. I don't think it's going to be a huge portion of, uh, of uh, any examination. And we've discussed in other settings side effects of these medications. But just to point out that some have better evidence supporting their use than others, the oral prophylactic agents. And they, they're in a few different classes, the anti-seizure medications. Uh, and the two that have probably the best evidence are topiramate and valproic acid. Uh, the antidepressant medications, uh, and there's reasonable evidence supporting the use of tricyclic antidepressants and some of the SNRIs, including venlafaxine, uh, and the antihypertensive medications, and probably the one with the best evidence is propranolol, uh, a non-selective beta blocker. Um, 
can, can you talk just very briefly about the indication for botulinum toxin in migraine prevention? So that botulinum toxin is indicated only for people who meet criteria for chronic migraine. So that's 15 headache days a month or more, of which eight should be clearly migraine or what that patient would identify as migraine. So headache more than half the time, most of which or at least half of which is migraine, allows you to prescribe the drug. And then you need to learn the protocol for the so-called preempt administration pattern, which is not that difficult to do. And the good news is that it is a very effective or at least reasonably effective option for many patients with chronic migraine with relatively few side effects. And, and an important point, uh, and sometimes a misunderstanding, is that uh, there was uh, it didn't it was not successful in the treatment of episodic migraine. Uh, so really, this is chronic migraine as defined as uh, 15 headache days per month, some of which meet criteria for migraine. Right, and I think the other the other failure of that drug, which was a surprise to many people, is that it wasn't effective for what would be called tension type headaches. So as far as we can tell, the mechanism of action of Botox in this case is not primarily related to muscle relaxation. And then there are, uh, getting back to CGRP, uh, there are some newly available medications uh, that affect uh, the CGRP system, and, and, and you mentioned the reasons why they might work. Uh, and those include, <coughs> those include uh, uh, one that is an antibody to the CGRP receptor, and that's arenamab. Uh, and at least two approved right now with one possibly on the way uh, that are antibodies to the CR CGRP ligand, to the CGRP molecule itself. And, and those are uh, fremenezumab and galcanezumab. Uh, and uh, I think it's just important for residents to remember that there is one that is receptor specific, the arenamab, and the other are ligand specific uh, monoclonal antibodies. Totally agree. And I have to say our clinical experience so far is that there probably is a difference in the response between those two targets. So if you have failed with one target, it certainly makes sense to try at least one of the others. Can you talk briefly about uh, the approved neurostimulation uh, treatments for migraine? Uh, there are a couple that have been approved by the FDA in the U.S., and, and there are questions on examinations about these sometimes. Sure. So the first in that group actually is the one that relates back to the physiology of aura that we discussed. So spring TMS, which is a single pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation device, was approved over a decade ago and which was studied as a way of aborting aura in patients with migraine aura and preventing the headache phase. It is an effective option. It does work. It's a fairly heavy device, now remodeled at a, under five pounds. But more importantly, unfortunately, it's an expensive device. Our FDA has very different rules for approving devices, and unfortunately, even when they do, insurers are not required to approve them. They consider them experimental. So this is a device that has great value, I think, in terms of proof of principle, but is not regularly used because it's prohibitively expensive. The next one that came along is the uh, supraorbital transcutaneous 
neurostimulation device, cephaly. So basically a TENS unit for your, your forehead. And that has some value. It was initially studied as a, a preventive therapy, 20 minutes every night. I think part of that value may actually be that it helps people fall asleep. Um, and then has also been studied as an abortive device for a 60 minute uh, treatment protocol, which probably also has some value for people as a kind of desensitization, um, but certainly one that, that for which there is some moderate data. I think the most interesting devices are the two other additions more recently, which are non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation, um, the gamma core device. So after the introduction of implanted vagal nerve stimulation for epilepsy, there were cohorts of patients who reported that they may or may not have had epilepsy response, but they didn't have as many headaches. And so that led to studies looking at non-invasive stimulation acutely of the vagus, and there are good trials showing that that is an effective option to treat cluster attacks for sure and migraine attacks perhaps, and there are now ongoing studies looking at that device as a preventive therapy. The most recent addition, I think, is the most interesting for several reasons, and that is remote electrical neurostimulation, and that is the Nerivio device. So this is a patch, uh, stimulator patch that goes on your arm, and what I've learned from these studies is that, in fact, there are 30 or 40 years of research that demonstrate that in other forms of pain, remote stimulation is the most effective form of the use of neurostimulation, that stimulating away from the, the site of primary pain is a far more effective approach than direct stimulation of the TENS type. And the two trials that have been published in the last few years of this in migraine show that that device is as effective as any oral tryptan. I think that's a remarkable finding and one which is now available as of last October and which is starting to get some clinical use. Certainly worth consideration. Patients are very happy about the idea that there is a non-medication option for treatment of their attacks. So, so just to summarize stimulation, there are several things that probably work, uh, and those include transcranial magnetic stimulation, electrical stimulation of the supraorbital nerve, electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve, and then electrical stimulation of the arm. Uh, and exactly how those work, who knows, um, but they do. Uh, so these are sometimes things that come up, up on exams and certainly things that people ask about, mm -hmm. uh, patients ask about. I'm going to move on to the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, and we could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm going to summarize a few pieces about each of these sort of in a, in a structured form and then ask you to comment about them e these in general. Uh, so there are four main types of trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, and what what, make, what uh, brings them in common is the presence of autonomic uh, symptoms, which include tearing, ptosis, uh, lacrimation, I guess that's tearing, uh, rhinorrhea, redness of the face, skin changes, ear changes, etc. cetera. Uh, and <clears throat> if I was to organize them by duration, uh, from longest to shortest, uh, there is hemicrania continua, which is continuous sometimes for months or years, uh, pain on one side of the head with autonomic uh, symptoms, which uh, is by report uh, exquisitely responsive to indomethacin, uh, an extremely rare uh, disorder, but one of the reasons why people need to consider indomethacin trials. Uh, next is cluster headaches, uh, which are common. Uh, and uh, cluster headaches are more common in men than women, 
they can be more common in smokers. Uh, they are uh, predominantly characterized by severe pain and agitation, and that element of activation helps distinguish them from migraines where want, people want to uh, uh, lie in a quiet room. Uh, clusters will happen a few times a year, can last weeks or sometimes longer than that, uh, and during the clusters people will have daily headaches, often several a day, uh, usually less than 10 a day. Uh, and the duration of the headaches is usually 15 minutes to a few hours. Uh, and the, there's acute treatments for that, which include triptans and oxygen. And then the uh, preventative treatments, I think the mainstays would be things like verapamil, lithium, and there's emerging uh, uh, evidence that maybe uh, um, psilocybin and, and, uh, and medications like that might help. And one of the CGRP antibodies has now been approved for treatment of episodic <coughs> cluster as well. Perfect. Uh, next shortest is paroxysmal hemicrania. It's shorter than cluster. It happens to women more than men. Uh, these are very short headaches, typically 2 to 30 minutes, certainly less than an hour. Uh, they're often a very focal or stabbing kind of pain, and people can have many, many of these attacks in a single day, up to dozens of these attacks in a single day. And this is the one of the other uh, uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias that's uh, responsive to indomethacin. So the two that tend to be indomethacin responsive are hemicrania continua and paroxysmal hemicrania. If it has hemicrania in the word, it's probably responsive to indomethacin. Uh, and then finally is sunct, which is short-lasting unilateral neuralgiform headache with conjunctival injection and tearing. And then there's SUNA, which is, a, I guess, a broader definition, uh, uh, the same thing, but the A is uh, autonomic symptoms. Right. And these are also very rare uh, syndromes, extremely short-lasting headaches, seconds to a few minutes, and people can have hundreds a day. Uh, and uh, the treatment for these, they can be difficult to treat, but uh, anti-seizure medications like lamotrigine and topiramate. Anything to add about uh, those? I think it's just people need to be aware of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. I agree with that. I think one sort of take-home clinical pearl there is that all of these are things which present as in a side-locked fashion. So if you're talking to a patient who only ever has pain on one side of their head, there's a much better chance that that fits into the TAC category than migraine, despite the fact that the word migraine is derived from hemicrania. Migraine should be a, a phenomenon that occurs on one side or the other, or starts on one side, goes to both, etc. But people with cluster or paroxysmal hemicrania or hemicrania continua will certainly say that this is a one-sided phenomenon with ipsilateral autonomic disturbance and the duration of all these is far shorter than migraine. That's a key feature. Um, and then from there it really becomes that issue of simply characterizing duration and whether or not there are a few or something like tens or hundreds of attacks which can help you classify that. Um, and then the other main distinction is that that last category, sunk and Suna, really are probably better considered some form of neuralgia. They typically have a sensory trigger like trigeminal neuralgia. They respond to peripheral neuropathic treatments, medications certainly, but also nerve blocks or stimulators. So they are probably only partly related to the rest of the TAC group and are are included in that group because there is typically ipsilateral autonomic activation as well. Maybe that's a good time to transition to trigeminal neuralgia, which I've lumped into secondary headaches uh, because it often has an underlying cause. 
Um, but I think it's important for people to understand uh, that uh, neuralgia is a, is a certain type of pain, it's a sharp, lancinating, shocking pain, and, and among the most severe types of pain that people can experience. And um, maybe one of the main distinguishing factor, factors of trigeminal neuralgia versus the Suna or Sunct syndromes is where on the face uh, people get the pain. As you mentioned before, migraine and primary headache syndromes typically involve the ophthalmic branch or V1 of the, of the trigeminal nerve, whereas uh, trigeminal neuralgia much more often involves V2 or V3. It's actually extremely rare for that to involve V1, and, and I think that's an important point. It is typically maxillary or mandibular. Right. Uh, and trigeminal neuralgia is characterized by uh, attacks of severe excruciating pain. It's been known to provoke suicidal thoughts uh, because it's so bad. Uh, it is uh, in the absence of any sensory dysfunction, all some people will have sort of a perceived sensory dysfunction. It's almost always unilateral, uh, exclusively. And then there's this exquisite sensi sensitivity to tactile stimulation, to toothbrushing, uh, things like that. And the treatment of trigeminal neuralgia is, is uh, considerably different than some of the migraine medications and tends to involve sodium channel blocking agents, uh, typically carbamazepine or oxcarbazepine. Uh, gabapentin uh, can play a role in its treatment. And baclofen, I think, is worth mentioning because it's certainly a useful adjunct. But as you implied there, the interesting other distinction there is that trigeminal neuralgia is far more often apparently attributable to some underlying lesion or, or uh, mechanical disturbance. Um, so a fair percentage of these patients will have a demonstrable neurovascular contact in the brainstem between typically a loop of the basilar or one of its branches and the root entry zone of the trigeminal nerve itself. So microvascular decompression, opening up the brainstem, putting a little padding between that nerve and blood vessel can be a remarkably effective treatment for what is otherwise a completely disabling disorder, the main other intervention being stereotactic radiosurgery or gamma knife of the trigeminal ganglia itself when medications aren't effective, when there isn't a clear neurovascular contact, that can be an effective intervention as well. So more peripheral interventions than what we have seen in uh, other primary headaches. I just uh, uh, also want to mention the other, <coughs> the other uh, primary syndrome uh, where we see uh, uh, trigeminal neuralgia is, is multiple sclerosis, so Absolutely. fairly common in multiple sclerosis, presumably from demyelination at the origin or one of the uh, intra-brainstem components of the trigeminal nucleus. And, and one physiology point, my understanding is that the generation of trigeminal neuralgia is from what's called effaptic transmission uh, be, uh, of, uh, of neurological impulses. So there is some focal demyelination either from MS lesion or from that neurovascular compression and that causes crosstalk between axons. And it's that crosstalk that causes spontaneous generation of action potentials which cause is the pain. Uh, and just in, a, <clears throat> in a, a point to our residents, uh, we did talk about hemifacial spasm in our movement disorders podcast, S presumably the same mechanism, except that there's hephaptic transmission of the facial nerve and that causes spontaneous facial movements. Finally, with the primary headache syndromes, can you uh, speak briefly about new daily persistent headache? Sure. So that is considered one of the other primary headache disorders. It is defined by the uh, memorable onset of a 
persistent headache disorder of a given day. Technically, it can be within about a three-day period. But a patient who says, on this date, I started getting headaches and I've had headaches ever since, is someone who meets those criteria. It's fortunately a relatively uncommon diagnosis compared with migraine and even cluster, but it is a diagnosis that I certainly don't like to make because as a group, these are patients who are, tend to be quite refractory to treatment. Um, I think the observation that the only other time that we see headaches that begin on a given date is in trauma. So someone who's had a concussion will have a similar story. And so that con the underlying concept that we think there should be some something that we can identify that precipitated this new phenotype is true. But so far, most studies have proven, uh, have not found an answer. The exception to that being uh, spontaneous intracranial hypotension. There are many studies now that say this is an important uh, underlying cause of what is that clinical group of new daily persistent headache or NDPH. So among other things, I think it's important to make that point that if you see a patient that meets that criterion, you should immediately embark on an investigation of some kind of CSF leak because there's a higher chance than in any other clinical group that you will find that. Otherwise, the general approach to treatment of that group is to try migraine-type therapies, to try even botulinum toxin, to try perhaps more cluster-directed things, but it's purely based on empirical trials of treatments that have helped in other headaches. That's a perfect transition uh, to a couple of secondary headaches, so I think we can move through these quickly. Spontaneous intracranial hypotension. Classically, I guess you would get a story of somebody with a postural component to their headaches that is much better when lying down, worse when standing up or after a period of time, presumably related to spontaneous uh, blebbing or a break of the uh, dura and, and leakage of the CSF to cause low pressure, uh, treated with things like uh, epidural blood patches. Uh, but we're starting to learn that, uh, that people don't always follow these patterns. But for the purpose of the examination, if, if, if the residents are seeing evidence of a spontaneous, uh, of a postural component to the headaches, uh, then they should want to think about spontaneous intracranial hypotension. Think about things like CT myelogram or, or MRI uh, with, with evidence of dural enhancement uh, to, to look for that. Um, and uh, moving on, uh, I'm not going to say too much about idiopathic intracranial hypertension, uh, also known as uh, pseudotumor cerebri. We see a lot of this, other than to say that the ophthalmologist's treatments are really focusing on preserving vision. Uh, and so this is spontaneous uh, uh, sporadic increase in the, uh, in the intracranial pressure causing optic disc edema, and if that persists long enough, then it can cause visual loss. Uh, and so uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors like acetazolamide can help reduce the pressure. Uh, lumbar puncture can help reduce the pressure in various severe versions. Uh, either uh, shunts or uh, optic nerve fenestration can help do that. But that doesn't tend to help the headaches as much as the other things. And, and would it be fair to say that with the headaches, we tend to end up treating them much like we do migraine? Absolutely right. And I think that's really the key point is that it is essential to treat pressure for the preservation of vision, 
but I think too often physicians are then frustrated by the persistence of headache and feel like it should have gone away by resolving the pressure, which doesn't happen. I think there's some basic concept there that persistent pressure elevation, which distorts intracranial structures, causes sensitization of that trigeminal vascular system. And even when you take away that initiating stimulus, the problem remains. So yes, I think that's a key point that you must treat pressure for vision, but then you also need to treat headache aggressively. And that usually works quite well. I'm going to spend a couple of moments on uh, temporal arteritis, uh, only to say uh, I was, uh, was uh, learned the 50-50-50 rule, and that is uh, rarely, if ever, reported in a patient younger than 50 years old, uh, rarely, if ever, associated with an ESR of less than 50, and typically treated with about 50 milligrams prednisone a day. Uh, so that's all I would say. It's a beautiful that. rule. <laughs> I tell you, one pearl there is that the prevalence of diplopia in temporal arteritis is higher than I realized, and that it actually is a quite valuable clinical correlate, along with jaw claudication and fever and weight loss. But those, some of those elements need to be present to make it worth considering. And I guess it's very difficult to make a definitive diagnosis without the temporal artery biopsy, and you have to have a good vascular surgery to get a good length of the temporal artery, uh, and you want to see this uh, giant cell infiltration, uh, so also known as giant cell arteritis. Uh, finally, uh, Cadacil, uh, and this is an arteriopathy, but it is associated with migraine and aura in younger age, followed by the accumulation of white matter, uh, and then progressive dementia uh, later on. And so on exams, you'll often see a vignette of somebody with migraine with aura, a family history of migraine with aura, uh, then the progression of uh, cognitive dysfunction, uh, stroke-like attacks, and, and white matter lesions in a number of different areas. Uh, so those are important to know about Cadacil. And, uh, and the gene involved is the NOTCH3 gene. Uh, so there's a, uh, we do occasionally do testing for NOTCH3 gene in people with migraine who have a lot of white matter changes. I don't know if I have anything to add about that. Any other things you wanted to add as uh, keys for our residents, or, or did, we, did we do a good job of this? I Chris? think we've covered the key points there. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. Great. Beautiful.